0: I was waiting for morning for the rising sun In the place of decision where it hadn't come Then I saw the horizon, Lord I heard your voice You became my vision and you became my song In the darkest night Now that I have tasted, now that I have seen the extravagant goodness you have showed to me, I will sing forever of your saving grace, I will shout in battle, my God is in this place, in the darkest night, in the middle of the fight, when there is no light, you champ be on darkest night
1: All right. Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Thank you very much for being here. You may be seated. If you're a regular here, you know that that's not normally how we transition. Uh, So something must be going on, and there is, uh, and we'll get to that in a second. But in the meantime, if you're new here, we're glad you're here. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia. Redemption is one church with 10 congregations in Arizona. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And today is a special time in the life of this congregation right here uh, at Arcadia. We are consecrating and installing two new elders to our elder board. Uh, They are Nicholas... I was going to say Nicholas Cage. That would have been really (laughs) funny. I don't usually call him Nicholas. That's why I'm being very formal. So it's it's Nicholas Oviedo. It's Nick. I know him as Nick. Okay, Nick Oviedo and Joe Ponce. Uh, I've known both these men a while. I've known Joe a little bit longer. Um, uh, Both those these guys, though younger than me, and I know just about everybody's younger than me at this point. But uh, both of these guys younger than me, but have demonstrated for years and years and years uh, this. Uh, incredible desire to know and submit to the will of God, which has made them both extraordinarily wise, and um, as we began talking about expanding the elder board at Redemption Church Arcadia and and coming up with uh, names and processes and all of that, uh, these two, if you could imagine, uh, they were sifted to the top, uh, actually, and um, they have been through a somewhat grueling 10-month process. To get to this point. So they're ending that journey today, but they are moving forward with the journey of being overseers and shepherds of uh, this congregation, along with myself and Jim Moreland and Steve Wheeler. And so we get to uh, have a little service to install them today. So if Nick and you and your wife Elizabeth and Joe and and your new wife Chelsea would please come on up here. So this is Nick Oviedo and his wife Elizabeth, and this is Joe Ponce and his wife Chelsea. So I'm going to be speaking to both them and to all of us uh, this morning in this uh, service. So here we go. Uh, Guided by the Holy Spirit, we have called Nick Oviedo and Joe Ponce to be consecrated and installed as Redemption Church Arcadia Elders. By the act of this service of congregation, as well as all the other preparation that we have put Nick and Joe through in the last 10 months, we are indicating our faith in God that Nick and Joe will help oversee and shepherd well our Arcadia congregation. I charge all of us to receive Nick and Joe, from Nick and Joe, their oversight by and through meekness and love. I further charge us to undergird Joe and Nick with prayer, grace, and encouragement In their service to God. And we pray that Nick and Joe would be a blessing not only to our congregation but to the whole house of God. So Nick and Joe, I want you to hear the word of God as directed to ministers and overseers of the church of Jesus Christ. From Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. From Ephesians chapter 4, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, Jesus. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And 1 Timothy chapter 4, Be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Nick and Joe, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you have been called as redemptions of Redemption Church Arcadia. You are admonished by God to be urgent in season and out of season, Be of conviction, rebuke and exhort, never failing in patience and in teaching. In all sincerity and wisdom, comfort and counsel the sick, the sorrowful, and the troubled. Instruct all to live up to their calling in Christ Jesus. So Nick, are you willing to assume this responsibility and the strength that God has given you? If so, answer, by the grace of God, I am. And Joe, are you willing to assume this responsibility and the strength that God has given you? If so, answer, by the grace of God, I am. By the grace of God, I am. Okay. I'm going to pray for uh, uh, these four people up here. And at this time, I would ask anybody who is on staff, any elders who are in the, the service, and any deacons who are in the service, if you would please come up. I don't know why. I always move over here to pray for some reason. It's like... A weird thing. <clears throat> Would you pray with us? Almighty and holy God, in every age and generation you have chosen servants to shepherd, lead, and oversee your people and your church. And we give thanks for your servants, Nick and Joe whom you have called to serve your people in this place. By your grace, we pray that you would enable them to use the gifts that you have given them to do your work. We ask that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and with the power of the resurrected Christ, that they may have the mind of Christ as your faithful servants. We ask also that uh, you would bless and encourage and empower their wives, Chelsea and Elizabeth, their children, their families, their faith communities, so that they might be able to serve and oversee and shepherd this congregation well, we ask that you would encourage them, that you would give them hope, and you would give them comfort, uh, even in times of trouble, uh, that they would be good shepherds. We pray that um, your blessing would be on these families and all the families of Redemption Arcadia, every family, whether single or married, whether um Uh, coming to us as members or coming to us as attenders. We just ask that you would bless our time, bless this faith community. And God, thank you for showing us your leadership through these two men. So we ask that you would consecrate them now to your service, your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. And it's by your Holy Spirit that we come to you. Amen. So Nick and Joe, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church and by the power and encouragement of the Holy Spirit and in the wisdom of the Father, I now declare that you are consecrated and installed as elders of this congregation. Let us continue to pray that God would be pleased to sanctify you both with his blessing and love. Amen. Go in peace. Now, would you please stand again as Ben comes to read the word of God for us?
2: Good morning. The reading for today is from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 35 through 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of the father that everyone who looks in the son and believes him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and not learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he was from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of this world is my flesh. This
1: is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thanks, Ben. So if you have Bibles or apps on your phone, please go to John chapter 6. We're just going to camp out there. What Ben read uh, was actually just a portion of what we're going to be going through. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. So only 38 verses. We'll be able to handle that today. Um And it is a continuation of what we started to look at last week in verses 1 through 21. So obviously if you're new here, um, we've been going through the book of John and we're going to continue to be uh, doing that uh, for a while. A couple things before we get started on the text though. Um, some announcements. First of all, um, the Women's Bible Study is going to be starting back up again uh, this Thursday morning at 9 o'clock in this room from 9 to 10.30, and uh, Tyler Thompson will come at the end of the service and say a little bit more about that, but uh, we would encourage you to contact Stephanie or Tyler if you're interested in that or look on our website. Uh, We're also going to be starting back up our uh, Monday Morning Men's Study, which starts at 6.30 on Monday mornings, not tomorrow, but we're going to start it on the 25th. And uh, Steve Wheeler is going to be leading that. And he's going to be taking people through a book. You, you should buy the book. It's a really interesting book. It's titled, The Gospel According to Satan. I bet you didn't know that Satan wrote one of the Gospels, but apparently he did. But here's the subtitle. It's the lies that Satan tells about the Gospel. And they're lies that we hear all the time that sound really good. And some people don't even realize that they're lies because they do sound uh, so good. And so um, there, there are eight of them. And uh, so they're going to be going through that on Monday mornings. And so I would encourage you to get more information on that as well. Also, I want to mention this. We, if you don't know, we have a YouTube channel. We live stream all of our services. We're also live streaming what we do on Wednesday and Thursday nights, if we do something on Wednesday and Thursday nights. Um, and this last Wednesday and this coming Wednesday, we're doing a, a little two-week miniseries that Tyler Thompson is actually doing on the theology of worship. And I was here last Wednesday to watch it. And what he did was he brought up Ben Bear, the guy that read the scripture this morning. Uh, and he also had somebody else who, uh, here uh, named Ryan who is, uh, she's absolutely wonderful in terms of, uh, she's a terrific musician, but she's also trained in, in worship music and, and, and all of that. She trained at St. Andrews in Scott Scot, not Scottsdale, Scotland. Um, and she, terrific. And they had this panel discussion. And I'm telling you, it was absolutely fantastic. And if you didn't get a chance to see it, um, it is archived on our YouTube channel. It's recorded there so you can go and look at it. But also I'd encourage you to come this Wednesday or watch this Wednesday as well. And like I said, we're working our way through uh, the book of John. But before we get that, I also want to acknowledge today is, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. Today is part of Martin Luther King Uh, weekend, and I do have a few personal reflections, and um, by a few, I mean five, Um, and personal reflections means that if you connect with these reflections in any way, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and if you don't, that's my fault, so we good on that, clear on that, okay, here you go, number one, Uh, I was alive and old enough to understand the events of 1968, the year that both Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. And whatever you think of either man's politics, those killings were tragic. It was a dark year and one that our nation should mourn. Uh, In fact, every time we go through Martin Luther King uh, weekend, um, I remember, and I'll talk about this in a minute, his letter from Birmingham jail, many of the sermons that he wrote that I've read many, many times. But because it happened in 1968, I also remember the assassination of, of Bobby Kennedy, Uh, And one of the reasons that is so ingrained in my mind is because two days before he was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles by Sirhan Sirhan, I got to shake Bobby Kennedy's hand. He was in Phoenix stumping for the Democratic uh, primary. And uh, he uh, was uh, scheduled to speak at Christown Mall over at 19th Avenue in Bethany Home. And my dad took me. And so the two of us went over there. And when he was done, sp- I don't remember anything he said. I was nine years old. I didn't care. But when he was, I knew it was Bobby Kennedy, though, uh, one of the Kennedys. And so as he was uh, leaving, they roped off this little way for him to get to his, him and his entourage to get to his car. And we happened to be standing right where they put up one of the ropes. And so my dad and I are standing there. And as Kennedy's coming down, he's stopping and shaking hands and talking to people. And he stopped to talk to my father and the woman who was next to him. And as he did, he looked me right in the eye and he shook my hand. And it was just, it was just one of those iconic moments that was then really sealed in my memory. Um, two days later when I woke up and, and heard the news that he had been assassinated. It was like the reality of the evil of this world just coming, crashing down on me at that time. Here's the second thing. This past fall, you guys maybe are getting tired of me talking about this person, but this last fall, I read with great interest Hampton Side's incredibly well researched and detailed book, Hellhound on His Trail. Hellhound on His Trail is the story of the hunt for James Earl Ray, also known as Earl Galt, who is the man who assassinated. Uh, martin luther king on april 4th at the uh, lorraine hotel in memphis it was an incredibly spellbinding read and i highly encourage uh, the book it's available in hard copies uh, 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 paperback audible any way you want kindle any way you want it Uh, number three on april 5th 1968 the day after king was murdered Ralph McGill wrote an opinion piece for the Atlanta Constitution newspaper, and this is how he began that essay. And it's a message that I believe still resonates today. At the moment the trigger man fired, Martin Luther King was the free man. The white killer was a slave to his own sense of inferiority, a slave to hatred. Number four, I mentioned this already. I'm certain that many of you have already heard of it, but if you haven't heard of it, you haven't read it, you really should. It's an important part of our history, and that is Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. I have also read, as I said, dozens and dozens of Martin Luther King's sermons, and one that continues to be in the forefront of my mind was delivered in 1956 to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church titled, Paul's Letter to American Christians. And that sermon that was delivered in 1956 is still as relevant today as it was in 1956, and I highly recommend that you uh, search the web to be able to read that. Stanford University has it on uh, one of their websites, as a matter of fact. And five, finally, I want to read from a statement on the church, race, and the gospel that was prepared by Big R, Big Redemption, last fall that I have found quite helpful and, again, I think is fitting for today. And here it is. This is just a part of this statement that was written for us. God created one human race in his image that contains a plurality of ethnicities designed to reflect the unity, equality, and distinctiveness within the Trinity. When humanity rebelled against God, the earliest consequences of this rebellion was division between God and humanity and division between one another, Humanity as a fruit of their ethnocentrism and egocentrism, including many histories, Christians in history, assign different races, different degrees of humanity and dignity. Because God hates racial division and ethnic hostility, we grieve them and desire to help undo their harmful effects wherever they exist. In its fullness, the kingdom of God will not have these hostile divisions. But until we experience the fullness of that kingdom, Redemption Church aspires to be a foretaste of Christ's multi-ethnic kingdom. We rejoice that the gospel of Jesus provides the resources not only to heal humanity's division from God, but also from one another. Amen. So now let me pray and we'll get into John chapter 6. Uh, Lord God, again, we come to your your word and we just ask that, that you would... Uh, illuminate the word for us, that you would teach us what you have to say to us today. And me- much of what you have to say to us is actually the the, the words of Jesus. And so we just ask that you would um, open our hearts and minds to that. Let us hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 38 verses in about 25 minutes. Piece of cake. Here we go. Verses... Uh, 22 through 26. We'll start with those first five. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. So remember last week, Jesus went from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee to the northeast, and then he went back to the northwest side. Now all, and and his disciples are back over there too, but now all the people who uh, experienced the uh, multiplication of the loaves and the fish are going, are waking up going where's Jesus, where's Jesus we, we, we got to get some more food and, and they're starting to kind of panic because Jesus isn't there and of course they're confused because there was only one boat as far as they knew and Jesus didn't get into the boat Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I know this is a little bit strange, but for my 34, 35 years that I've been a Christian, every time I read those verses there, I cannot help but think of Um, the people that followed Elvis around. I don't know if any of you remember who Elvis was, but I mean, it was like wherever Elvis went, people just flocked uh, to to see him. So, uh, and I know Jesus is better than Elvis. I get it, okay. But nevertheless, it just reminds me of this sort of fervor that people had for what they thought Jesus could do for them. And so they went, uh, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, now watch this exchange. Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. <laughs> so, it's, this is funny to me. So you and I, you've probably experienced this. Somebody comes up to you and asks you a question or makes some sort of a statement to you. And you hear the question or the statement, and immediately you think, that's not what they're really asking, that's not what they're really saying. There's something else going on here. In in, uh, rhetorical analysis, we call it, what's the text behind the text? What's really happening here? And we're trying to read between the lines, we're trying to figure out, Uh, You know, is this coded language? Are we trying to be trapped? And we think we're really good at figuring out the text behind the text. And sometimes we are. But there's one person in history who was perfect at figuring out the text behind the text. And he did it all the time. And if you read through the Gospels, you constantly see these times when people will ask Jesus something or they'll say something to Jesus. And it feels like a non sequitur the way he answers or responds. But what he's really doing is getting at the core of what the person is looking for. And he knows how to do that. He's being there like, when did you get over here? And he's going, You're just here because you want another meal. That's essentially what he's saying to them. And notice also that Jesus, John records, that Jesus is using, we talked about this last week. There are many words that could be used in the ancient Greek to describe a miracle. And one of them is the word that we would translate as sign. So he's not using the word that is translated miracle or wonder or anything like that. He's using specifically the word translated sign. Meaning, yes, it was something supernatural. Something that God did. Yes, that is true. However, the point of it is to point us to something else. And so even Jesus says that. He says, look, you saw the signs. You don't get it. It's supposed to point you to me. But, and you're here for me. But it, you're really here for the bread, you're not here for me. And then Jesus goes into this interesting um, exchange over the next several verses... ...trying to explain that he's actually the bread, which is kind of interesting. And so I find it funny, and not funny haha, ha but funny ironic... ...that in the first century in the Roman Empire, which is the context in which they're there... ...in the first century in the Roman Empire... Roman emperors liked to keep the citizenry pacified by giving them free food and entertainment. Does anybody get this? Does anybody see the irony there? They would keep the people pacified, pacified by giving them free stuff. Commodus lived. And if you don't get that reference, you need to watch Gladiator, but without your children, okay? (laughs) Commodus, this has been going on for millennia, this whole idea. But that's not who Jesus was, and that's not why Jesus came. See, Jesus was not interested in our pacification. He came for redemption and restoration. Could you imagine John the Baptist, instead of when Jesus arrives on the scene, instead of saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Instead, he says, Behold, it's Jesus. He's here to try to pacify you. It just doesn't have the same power. It just doesn't have the same strength. And it really doesn't matter. So Jesus was not interested in that. And our problem is just like those in Jesus' first century audience, we're so willing to be pacified. We're okay with pacification that it, it obstructs us and distracts us from the true message of Jesus, which is redemption and restoration. And that's not God's fault. It's not God's problem. We shouldn't blame God for that. But rather, it's something that we need to be honest with about ourselves. It, again, this reminds me of C.S. Lewis when he wrote about how people who are busying themselves with the things of the world, trying to be pacified by the things of the world, are similar to children who are playing in the mud and making mud pies. And they're all excited about that because they cannot imagine anything better than sitting in mud making mud pies. And and the thing that uh, Lewis uses is a, a holiday at the beach. But what he's really saying is that you and I cannot imagine what it's like to be saved, what it's like to be redeemed, what it's like to be a part of the coming restoration. And these verses, starting here and going all the way to verse 15, it's what, uh, what we see Jesus saying to the people here is that, you know, you did come over here for bread. And you need to understand that there is bread here, but it's not the bread you were expecting. It's not even the bread you want, it's the bread you need, and it's better bread. But you're going to struggle to understand this bread. Verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? These verses demonstrate, again, how we humans believe that we need to work our way to salvation and worthiness in God's eyes. That the only way we can have the favor of God is if we work, 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 and then we have no idea whether or not it's good enough. And Jesus comes along and just destroys that myth. And he says, in God's eyes, you're already worthy enough that I get sent to the cross. He loves you. By his grace, you can come. You don't have to do anything. It is a gift of God. Salvation is the fruit of God's love, mercy, and sacrifice. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with our good works, our good deeds, and our efforts. Although once we are saved, we are then filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. But we get it backwards. We think we do the work, then we have the favor of God. No, God gives us his favor, and then we are freed up and empowered and gifted to do the work. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Here's the work that must be done for eternal life. Believe. Have faith. Embrace me. Stop with this other stuff and come to me. But even that, as we'll see in verses 37 and 44, is not necessarily a human work, but rather it is a gift from God. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, Jesus, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? How shallow are they? How shallow? They're they're there because of the signs. I mean, and how shallow are we? With all that Jesus has done already, what more could Jesus do to believe, for them to believe? Even the resurrection, which I would argue is probably the most difficult of the signs, even the resurrection didn't convince some of them. It's amazing. Verses 31 through 32, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, they continue, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So again, these verses are interesting because the people appear to be citing scripture, they are. Uh, in Exodus, but they appear to be citing the scripture in order to make the argument about the glory of Moses. They, they keep wanting to look at Moses rather than God, but the biblical test, text itself specifically and explicitly tells the reader that it was God who supplied the manna. It wasn't Moses. Moses was simply the broker. And so we've talked before about how some of the people did see Jesus as the new Moses prophet. And in one sense, he is the new Moses, but he's far and away superior to Moses and better than Moses and different from Moses in that Moses was merely a broker and Jesus is the bread. Moses passed out the bread. Jesus is the bread. And they're struggling with understanding that. And Jesus makes this point to help them and us see that Jesus can't be fooled, he can't be out-debated, and that he's going to stay on mission and further, Jesus is saying here that the bread he gives is the true bread of heaven. And it's better than the manna that the Jews received because it's him. It's salvation. It's God in the flesh. So Jesus continues in 33 through 37. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They're still not getting it. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So in verses 35 through 37, even the people then understood and accepted the reality that God is both sovereign over the future... And that you and I are also responsible and accountable for our our, our decisions. So God is sovereign over the future. That does not alleviate us from the responsibility and accountability of our decisions, of our choices. Even they understood that. And verse 35 becomes the first of the seven great I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. He'll say, I am the good shepherd. He'll say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And on and on and on. In verse 37, however, Jesus specifically reminds us of the biblical truth that salvation is of God. It's a gift from him, and it's not of man. God gives those he destines for salvation to Jesus. And we'll see this emphasized again in verse 44. Verses 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Understand, Jesus is God, but he's submitting himself to God, the Father, okay? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is, this, these verses are what I would describe simply as Glorious. This is the will of the Father. This is what the Father calls us to. He says, Look, you've been working, 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 working. Here you go. Here's my son. Believe in him. Just believe in him. Have faith in him. Embrace Jesus. There's your salvation. There's your redemption. There's your coming restoration. But we're so busy running around doing what we think is best that we miss the simplicity of the gospel. We talk all the time about how true wisdom comes first and foremost from submitting our will to God's will. That's where wisdom comes from. Well, here you go. That submission to his will starts very simply. Believe. Have faith. Put your trust in him. Do you believe in Jesus? Most important question you'll ever answer in your life. And then uh, 41 through 44 so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They're thinking about the story of Exodus, and they don't like that. So they said to him, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? This is, this is, this is not a compliment that they're doing right now. Uh, how does he say, now say that I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. That word draws in verse 40, 44 is an important word. It's the Greek word halkuse. And it literally means to drag. To drag. Now, get in your mind the picture of dragging something. Uh, it's usually, I guess you could even say, go so far as to say, it's against the will of the thing being dragged. Okay, That's the picture that you need to see here. I came to Christ 33, 34 years ago, 1987, June 1987. That's when I came to Christ. And I will tell you, I had to be dragged. Not by Jackie, but by the Holy Spirit. And the reason I needed to be dragged was because I was a good person. I was okay. I was better than most. If if good behavior and ethics were the PGA tour, I made the cut. I'm in the final 72. I don't have anything to worry about. How dare you say that I'm a sinner and that I need a redeemer? None of what I thought made any sense in light of the gospel. It was only when the Holy Spirit, when God flicked that light, I'm arguing against, arguing against, arguing against, even as I'm sitting in church, listening to Richard Jackson preach, listening to him teach the Bible. Nope, nope, nope. And then one night it was like, ah, that is me. I'm a sinner, and I need redemption. It's the Holy Spirit taking me. That word, helkuse, the most common first-century Greek usage in the common language was to describe getting water out of a well or getting buried sea treasure out of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, just, again, think about that imagery, okay? If you need water and you have a well, do you go to the edge of the well and stand at the well and say to the water... C- come, on. C- come on. Come on. Come it's, on. It's better up here. And I'm thirsty. Could you come up here? See, a lot of people say this. See, they'll say, well, what God does is He woos us. He stands back from us, but He says, look, here I am. I'm here. Come on. It's okay. It's okay. No, He doesn't. He comes and He gets us. He sends His Son. And then he comes and he gets us. The only way you can get water out of that well is to go get it with a bucket. The only, you can't stand on the shore of the Mediterranean and say, I'd really like all that buried treasure to come up to me. Now, come on up here. I'll find you a good home after I sell it. Okay? No, you got to go get it. You have to go get it and drag that treasure out. Verses 45 through 51 it is written in the prophets, and they will be ta- all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I, give, uh, that, uh, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, this gets, starts to get a little dicey. And then we're going to see in verses 52 through 59, Jesus doubles down on what he's saying here. But you have to understand that as he's saying this, the people he's saying it to have two things in, in the back of their mind. They have the feeding of the 5,000, which just happened a couple of days ago. So that that bread, but they're also, again, they're thinking about Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness during the Exodus and how God provided manna for them. And the bread we need, what Jesus is saying is that the bread we need, the manna we truly desire and is essential to our existence is not flour. It's Jesus. Jesus. A simple reminder that even though the manna thing during the exodus was awesome, those who ate the manna still died. Jesus just said that. Even though the multiplied bread at the feeding of the 5,000 was awesome, those who ate the bread are still going to die. Being saved and delivered and rescued or taken out of a difficult and unpleasant life situation today is wonderful, but even after that, we still have a profound need that is beyond us. You and I still have the need for eternal life, for redemption. Even after we are saved temporarily and temporally from a bad situation. When we get to John chapter 11, we're going to see that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been dead for four days. He's in a tomb. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's awesome. But but Lazarus still needs Jesus. He's going to die again. He wasn't raised forever. He is going to die again. So... I would say let's get excited about the miracles and the healings and the feedings and the supernatural beverage transformation at weddings. Those are all good things, but we still need to believe. That's the grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness of Jesus. And now Jesus doubles down in 52 through 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... And died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So you listen to that, then and even to some extent now, this must have been quite revolting, especially if they didn't or we don't understand metaphor and symbolism. People then, like today, are sickened by cannibalism. We struggle with that. But of course, that's not what Jesus is really suggesting. He is beginning to show us how he identified with the Passover lamb, the flesh of which is eaten and the blood of which is shed for atonement. But clearly, in context, Jesus is simply saying, in a metaphorical form, in a rhetorical form, that to eat his flesh is like believing in God in the same way that you believe in God for the manna in the wilderness. In other words, Eating and drinking the Lord's Supper merely means I believe, I identify with Jesus, I have embraced Jesus. So verse 54 foreshadows Jesus reconstituting the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. And we'll see that, we, we can see that in Luke 22 and in Mat- Matthew 26. We also will see it later on in the John series. The body of Christ, the bread, the blood of Christ, the wine. And of course, this This is understood more fully in light of the resurrection, which comes later. And it's a riddle of sorts. Now, now here's what we need to understand. It is a riddle of sorts. And, And it was common for teachers and rabbis and sages of their day to speak in riddles, to teach in riddles. But those listening struggled for some reason to understand, which I'm telling you should be surprising. Because as Jews in those days, they were used to guys like Jesus using riddles and metaphor and rhetorical schemes in order to teach and to make their point. Nevertheless, later when he did the bread and the wine at the Last Supper, his disciples kind of started to get it, and then after the resurrection, they really did get it. That Jesus here says that those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, it simply means whoever believes in him. It's a rhetorical tool that they should have understood because they knew that people didn't really eat flesh and drink blood. I ask the question, they're so upset by this. I ask the question, were they just looking for a reason to be upset? Were they looking for a reason to disagree with Jesus? Were they looking for a reason to be mad? People read this paragraph today and they get very upset by it. And I, just, I argue, it's just not that hard. Jesus is simply teaching everything that we need to hear. He is Savior. Believe in him. The problem, I guess, would be simple to diagnose, and it's true in every generation, every century, in every context. The people want to receive and take the benefit of Jesus, but not the participation or the sacrifice. It's the height of consumerism. You know, they had a consumer mentality in the first century as well as today. That's something that's not new. And I know I rail on consumerism in the church quite a bit. Well, here's things that we, here's three things that we need to know about consumerism in the church. Number one, it was true then, 2,000 years ago, just as it is today. Human beings have not changed. Here's the second thing. It's partly the church's fault that we've fallen into consumerism. It's the leaders of the church that have helped to do this. We have fallen into these patterns of consumerism, trying to appeal to people on an attractional basis. We are to blame as much as anybody for this. We need to own our part in that. And third, until we, the followers of Christ, and we, the shepherds of the body of Christ, acknowledge this propensity and repent of it, it's going to continue to plague us. Now, as we wrap up, I want to do one more thing. I want to look back at verses 35 through 40 and talk about a couple of things Uh, a little bit deeper in those verses. Let me just reread that paragraph. So Jesus said to them, "'I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out.'" For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's a key right there. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God... The God of the Bible, the God that we worship, the God that we submit our lives to, is one God who is manifest in three persons. That's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and as I've read different authors and scholars on this, and as I've read my own Bible, which is really probably the best place to go, uh, I've begun to see and understand this amazing community that the Trinity has with each other, the three persons of the Godhead. I begin to see one author describes it as the yieldedness of the members of the Trinity. Every member of the Trinity is yielded to the other two. Another author describes it as being shy towards the other the other two. Every member of the Trinity is shy towards the other two. In other words, they would rather push forward the greatness... If it's the son Jesus, he would rather push forward the greatness of the father and the the spirit rather than his own greatness. The father is constantly talking about the son and the spirit. The spirit is constantly pushing us towards the father and the son. That's an amazing thing. They're yielded to each other. They're serving each other. They're humble towards each other. We're created in the image and likeness of God. One of the main ways that we are image bearers of God is that we were created for relationship and community. And that perfect relationship and community before sin entered this world was that we would also be yielded to each other, that we would be shy towards each other, that we are built for service for each other. That we love one another and we love our neighbors. That's the picture of the kingdom of God in His image. And the Trinity gives us that picture of yieldedness. Read your Bible. For instance, Jesus talks about how I'm here just doing the will of my Father. My Father is the one who teaches. My Father is the one who leads. My Father is the one who's in charge. And then later on, we're going to see in John chapters 14 and 15, we're going to see that Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I'm getting ready to go away. I'm going to be crucified. But you're going to be better off without me because I'm sending the Spirit, and the Spirit is so much better than even I am. The Father is greater than Jesus. The Spirit is greater than Jesus in Jesus' mind. That's that's the humility that God calls us to adapt to and to adopt as well. And and even then, it reminds me of of Paul writing to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, where Paul says at one point in chapter 5, it's verse 15, he says, Listen, do not live your life as an unwise person, as a foolish person, but live your life as a wise person. And then he tells us why. He says, because the days that we live in are evil. He's saying, you need the wisdom of God in order to navigate a fallen sinful world. If you're going to do it by your own foolishness, you're not going to do very well in this world. And so then he repeats it again in verse 17. He says, he says therefore, don't be foolish, but understand and know what the will of God is. So here you go. Paul is saying, Wisdom comes from submitting yourself, as Jesus and the Spirit do, to the Father and understanding His will. That's where wisdom comes from. Foolishness comes from the world. Foolishness comes from us. Foolishness comes from us living under the influence of all these worldly things that aren't necessarily bad, but when they make, we make them our gods, they do become bad. So Paul is saying, you need to live in submission to the will of God. That's wisdom. And then verse 18 comes along, and a lot of people are wondering, why did he throw verse 18 in? Did he, did, he for, did he suddenly remember that there was a drinking problem in Ephesus? Because verse 18 says, and do not get drunk on wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. No, it's his metaphor. It's his example. It's his illustration. Don't live under the influence of the things of this world. Not that they're bad. Paul never said wine was bad. He's just saying that if you give your life to wine, it becomes bad. And wine is merely representative of wealth, or power, or status, or your career, or your education, or sex, or whatever it is that we're living under the influence in this world of. Instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's reiterating that true wisdom comes from submitting to and knowing who God is. And that's exactly how the Trinity lived. And Jesus here in these verses is saying, I'm not here of my own will, I'm here doing the will of the Father. That's why I am here. And that's what you and I are called to. Once we know Jesus, once we embrace the gospel for our salvation, that's what we're called to. We we are called, yes, yes, we need to take care of ourselves. But really, we're called to love our neighbors and to submit our needs to others. Because that's what Christ did by going to the cross for us. He is the ultimate submitter to of our needs in this world because he went to the cross for us. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we just pray that we would be your people, that we would love you, love others, and that we would submit our wills to your will. That we would seek to know you and we would seek your wisdom. We need that, Lord, and we pray that you would encourage us and empower us to do that, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at that time of reflection and response. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together again. Let me me just say this. I I really miss the liturgy of the way we used to do church pre-COVID, and we're having those conversations about when we can kind of start getting back to that the confession that's so important but also the the taking of of the lord's supper together as a community rather than with these little kits and i know some of you have gotten addicted to that grape juice it tastes so good i I can't wait until we can do this again as a community that's true but until then we have these kits trying to be safe and if You don't have one. You now would be a good time to go and grab one out of the lobby. Those of you who are at home, you probably have better tasting elements, so we're envious of that. And so we're going to take this supper together. The body is uh, the bread is Jesus's body broken for us, and the juice or the wine is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And Paul reminds us that every time we eat the bread and drink this cup, we Proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. We're proclaiming our salvation. We're celebrating our salvation. We're confessing that we need him. So let's do that now.
0: Bye. Still stands great, is your faithfulness? Your faithfulness, I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never failed me yet. I won't lie Your word will come to pass And my heart will sing Your praise again Jesus You're still enough And keep me within Your stands. Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my call. phone. Come
3: Thank you so much for worshiping together this morning. Uh, I'm going to read our benediction for the morning, but do want to let you know of a couple of things just to remind you of that are happening this week. Wednesday night, we're going to have a Theology of Worship Through Music class. That's here at 6.30, from 6.30 to 7.45. Uh, Childcare is available for that, so we'd love to have you come out. also want to let you know that Thursday morning, the Women's Bible Study at Redemption Arcadia resumes, starts back up again, and that's here in this room as well thursday morning nine o'clock to ten thirty 30 a.m uh, we have a great leadership team that we've put together uh, for that women's bible study and i'm going to take part in that as well doing some of the teaching and facilitating uh, there's child care available we'd love for you all to come out to that as well and so we want to uh, invite you to participate in those ways thanks again for being here together today let's read together hebrews 13 uh, verses 20 through 21 i'll read this for us as our benediction Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.